I remember the first smile he ever gave me, and he had the same hit that I did. You know what love is? Love is a super respect. And I had such respect for that guy. It's something that just faces you one day, and it hits you. This is Studio Confessions, the art podcast. I am your host, Luis Martin, the art engineer. Listen in for conversations with artists and culture makers as we talk about their creative practice and what moves them. Let me share my wax poetic monologues and how to activate your creativity to live an inspired and more beautiful life. That's right, I said beautiful. Welcome to the studio. I'm glad you're here. Picture it. New York, before Giuliani turned it into a theme park. Miami, before it went pastel. Seattle, as gray as ever. It's 1980, and the backdrop to a love story that played out for decades. This conversation with Gary Carlson took place just last year in December, but it could have been several lifetimes ago. It was one of the last one-on-one sit-down conversations I would have before the world came down with COVID. My husband and I traveled to Seattle looking for a love story and found Gary still glowing from an epic love with his partner of 30 years, the artist Robert Laughlin, famously known for his iconic image of the brute. Gary talks to us about the magic of rubbing shoulders with queer cultural elite and being at the center of the 80s New York art scene. He tells us about selling furniture to Andy, yeah, that Andy, and later reminisces about coming across his work, which he and his partner then sold to buy a scampy camper for two. I sat with this conversation for months, holding on to it. When I set out to meet Gary, I wanted to document a queer love story. Because as gay, lesbians, trans, bi, and questioning people, no, we don't often hear or see our love stories told or reflected. We are often cheated from the wisdom of a life lived and loved. This is an episode that sets out to honor and celebrate Gary and the chairman. Listen extra closely to the generous story and insights Gary offers about love addiction, respect, and loving an artist. You don't need me to tell you. From the sound of his voice, he enjoyed every minute of it. So Gary, thanks for having us. Oh, thank you for doing this. Thanks you guys for... are really, you know, you know, you're more New York than LA. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so far away from New York. Where are we? We're out in the Olympic Peninsula. Um, yeah. Now, you, as I read in a book somewhere, you are a muse. That's what he told everybody, and but he's in it too. You know, that hairline going way back, that's his hairline. Now, can you tell us a little bit about Robert, Robert Laughlin? Yeah, Robert, okay. Ro- when I was in Seattle working for Pan Am and doing real estate, Uh, Robert was in uh, Oakland, California, and uh, he had a shop. He First, he had the first punk store in San Francisco called Supply. Then he met John Rothamurl. He was a coquette. And uh, Sylvester, uh, Sylvester Hibiscus of the coquettes was, you know, the, the, uh, uh, Rex Reed, the film critic for The Observer, 
discovered them in San Francisco, and John was one of them, and he meets Robert, and they go to Salvation Armies because John wants costumes from the 20s. And in those days, nobody went to Salvation Army. They wouldn't be caught dead in there, you know? And so they had everything. And Robert started picking up on design. John was just intuitive in design as Robert, but not near as fast. And he, you know, nobody could just see a leg of something and know it's somebody, mm. you know? And... Um, now you uh, mentioned the coquettes. The coquettes were... All right. The coquettes sold out auditoriums. They had beards in dresses. And Sylvester actually had some good hits. And he founded the coquettes. And Robert ran into them. And uh, uh, when I met Robert at Boots and Saddles, he was with Larry Foss, who carried the bowl constrictor for them. And he was a kid, and he was really cute. And so we got in with the divine people, and we were in with the coquettes. And then... Um, you were the queer elite. Yeah, yeah it was... Yeah, not that I knew it. <laughs> oh, if I knew it, I'd go back to Pan Am. <laughs> anyway, so... So yeah, we uh, uh, so Robert was living with John and Ren D'Antonio. D'Antonio was an underground film cr uh, uh, producer who told Andy Warhol to paint soup cans, and Andy Warhol even acknowledged that. Wait, so you mentioned Boots and Saddle, which yeah. is in New York. Yeah, and what year is this? This is uh, 1980. Can you take me to New York 1980? What 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 is Well, New York like? in 1980 was uh, John Lennon hadn't been shot yet mm -hmm. because when we went to Florida in the winter of 1980, there was there was uh, uh, used furniture stores full of Nelson. In fact, on the day we left New York. Uh, we stopped by a used furniture store, uh, store on uh, Houston, and we got 40 fiberglass chairs, and we sold them to Warhol, and we had like, you know, almost $2,000 to go to Florida, because I had no money. I was waiting. I thought my pay records would be waiting for me when I got to uh, Miami, but no, they weren't. So, in fact, we waited five weeks to get my pay records, and we were trying to buy food for pennies in, uh, in uh, McDonald's, and they wouldn't take them. So this is, this is Rob. So there's, it's just, Miami's all white. That's even more than New York. It's all white and gorgeous. You know, there's no pastel anywhere. You know, and they were starting to, just starting to do the pastel thing. They were starting to genificate. And when we went there, and, um, um, you know, uh, Robert loved it. Everything was human scale. Everything was white. It was like you were in Casablanca, mm. you know. It was just, un it was exotic as hell. And, you know, we got the whole lobby of the Henry Hotel, you know, to Robert wanted to store again. And uh, he called it Futurama. And, uh, you know, trezzle floors and, and uh, round brick windows, block, glass brick windows. And what we did in Florida, 
was we bought out all these lobbies of all, you know, the New Yorker and stuff. We bought the whole lobby. It was all Wolfgang Hoffman. And it all went to Warhol in 26-foot trucks. I went three times a year because I had a five-week vacation. I'd been 15 years at Pan Am, and I had five years vacation. So we would take those vacations and um, work. And, and go to Warhol, is that work? And, the, and what we would do was uh, set all those chairs out on the street in front, of, in front of the factory in Union Square. And Warhol would come to the window and he'd go, oh, you guys like to be with truck drivers, don't you? <laughs> That's how Robert got the name The Chairman from Warhol, because of Miami Beach. It all, all the Wolfgang Hoffman went there and they replaced it with sofas that the material went all the way to the floor. And so when they swabbed the Terezo, they left a ring around the sofa. They didn't, they did off, they just didn't get Deco. There was one Deco store in Miami Beach called Definitely Deco, and there wasn't one Deco in there. It was all bad 50s, which she thought was Deco. You know? So anyway, there was this black singer that did country western, and one of his hits, probably his biggest hit, was, Oh, the crystal chandelier lights up the paintings on our wall, your wall. The, the marble statuettes are standing stately in the hall. Robert and I sang that all, all over the Lower East. We couldn't get that out of us. And we just met. You know, but, but, you know, it was like, you know, I remember the first smile he ever gave me and he had the same hit that I did. We, we had one night together and I says, after that, you know, I says, well, let's meet tomorrow on the Empire State Building. And, and Robert says, oh, okay. And, um, that I was loading 747s at Kennedy and so someone comes up to me and says, do you want to do overtime? And I said, uh, sure. And because uh, I was on double time and half, that would make it triple time and a half. So uh, Uncle Sam got it all. Don't think I did well. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, I, then I remembered that I was supposed to meet Robert because I worked evenings at, on the Empire State Building. But I couldn't do it because I accepted overtime. So I said, oh, well, and then they come back out at me and they say, Gary, that bundle you're sitting on is a small boy going to London. It was a body. Oh, my goodness. So it was bad karma, <laughs> you know. So anyway, um, uh, that next day, that next evening, I didn't do overtime the next evening. I, I borrowed a I was living in a commuting house of pilots and stewardesses, and I lived in the basement, and I was fixing up the basement. And so um, a pilot said I could use this new, brand new Z80, Z80 or whatever they are. It's, you know, those Datsuns, they were the <laughs> first sports car, you know, that just shook up the world. And he had one, brand new. And he says, Gary, you can use it. Because I was introducing him to stewardesses because the stewardess liked me. I'd take him to, you know, country western bars down in Manhattan and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, the North Star was all country western and it was great bands. I mean, you know, major. 
And they just, you know, I had stewardesses all around. So this one pilot, you know, knew if he was with me, there'd be stewardesses. Were you <laughs> openly gay? Oh, uh, no. No, I wasn't openly gay at the time. I was going to gay bars, but everybody knew I was, you yeah. know. It wasn't until I lived with Robert that I just said, fuck it, you know. I don't give a shit. I only care about Robert. So um, what about Robert, you know, made you inspired to be like, fuck well, it, because, he, well, all right. I had a flirtation with this guy that did all of Warhol's uh, uh, screen printing. He had a genius. His stamp is next to Warhol's on the paintings. His his stamps are next to uh, uh, Kenny Scharf's on his paintings, he, and and uh, J John Lennon uh, uh, collected him. A lot of big celebrities collected him. He had a genius, and it was color. Nobody could fucking come close to color like um, uh, him. And I had a flirtation with this guy because. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, I used to get a lot of champagne from Pan Am, and he was doing happenings in abandoned parking garages down in Houston and stuff when it was like a ghost town down there. And um, so I would bring champagne from Pan Am, Moet, you know, Candid, and, uh, you know, and, and I was, you know, living in his house, and he had a barber chair that overlooked, it was right down by the fishermen's on the Lower East, you know, where the fishermen uh, buy, all the chefs buy their fish and stuff, and it overlooked that, it was just really exotic to me. But he never would take me to Warhol. So when I met Robert, the first day, he says, you got to come with me to Warhol. And so I was impressed. So um, what was he like? Warhol? No, Robert. Robert was like the nicest person in the world when he was sober. Mm. But when he was drinking, he'd get real angry. He had low self-esteem and he let people use him. And uh, he would take that out on me. He'd just scream it. But I said, I'm just going to take it. Why? You know, because this guy, it, you know, you know what love is? Love is a super respect. And I had such respect for that guy. When I met him, I lived on a 34-foot rum rudder. I had in... What's a rum rudder? During the Prohibition, they, they smuggled rum from Canada to the United States, and, and it was in Oyster Bay. It was just like the Great Gatsby, you know? It's all mansions around you, but you're in the little boat, <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, so, um, you know, but Robert and I lived out there because he couldn't go to the commuting house because all the stewardesses, and you're not allowed guests, you know? So we'd go out to the boat. We'd be in Oyster Bay. And out there was Robert's picking ground. I mean, you know, the wealth out there and those thrift stores and the used furniture stores. One used furniture store had a nickel deco desk, desky. And Robert, oh, it was a dining table. So Robert, you know, goes into town and he stays a couple days because I got worked and, and, um, uh, and uh, he was in, uh, he was working for this decorative art outlet. Um, and um, some lady comes in there and she's a shoe designer. And uh, he tells her about it. And then it's out in Long Island. 
and uh, says he'd want a finder's fee if she wanted it. The day he takes me up to Warhol, he's articulating this table to Warhol. I mean, he described, and Warhol just grabbed, he knew too. And, and all of a sudden, Warhol goes like this. He said, I had dinner on that table last night. He's in the factory, and he's got all these portraits, you know, huge portraits on one wall on tracks. And he starts moving them like this, one after another. And th then he steps back, and he says, is that her? And Robert goes, yes. She's a shoe designer. And he says, that's where I had dinner last night. He says, here's her phone number. Go get the money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for Warhol to give a phone number of a client out is a big deal, but he was pissed off. It was an incredible desk. Desky, you know, nickel. I mean, American Deco, the best, you know. So anyway, we went and got the money, you know. So that's the first time I went up. And I saw Rupert Smith is his name, the genius of color, Rupert Smith. And Rupert Smith was up there, and he, and I waved to him, and I say, hi, Rupert, because he always say, you can't go to Warhol. I can't bring people up there. And so I'm up at Warhol's. I'm in the factory. Diane von Furstenberg's right over there. <laughs> Are you an artist or want to be, but can use a guide, a cheerleader, and a coach? I'm excited to announce that I'm now officially coaching artists. Let's work together on a project-based, result-driven outline to get you into a state of prolific flow. Because artists like us don't seek validation. We create our own opportunities to shine. Go to prolificflow.com and drop me a line. Now is our time. Let's work together. So it, it's so uh, palpable and visible that what brought you guys really was you and Robert together was this love for art and this love for design, this love for this art community that you were... Well, you know, the, the, the thing, I think that uh, a magnet that I wasn't even aware of was when I was in Seattle, I bought a house for $5,000. It was when the last person leaving Seattle was supposed to turn out the light. Do you remember that sign? Definitely. Well, there was a sign, billboards, because Boeing was hurting so bad, but I was working for Pan Am. So what I'm trying to tell you is my house was a party house and I was famous for parties because I get all the champagne from Pan Am. <laughs> and I only got little bottles like this because I like the sound of pop, 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 pop all night. <laughs> Everybody, you know, that was coming was really, you know, my parties were it. And there would be 13-year-old girls there and everybody goes, don't let those girls in. I said, you're going to be glad you're hanging out with them someday because you're going to know them from way back. Anyway, so, so my house was a party house. With Robert, right away we meet, probably I was with him like a week, and we meet um, Weinstein, um, Colleen Weinstein, her her husband. They were living in the Palladium at the time. It was an, It was closed. And they had an apartment in the Palladium. And her husband, when he died of throat cancer, the New York Times said, the guy that redesigned the nightlife of Manhattan. So, see, I no matter how great my parties were in Seattle, I was going there better in New York. And a lot of it is because of Ron Galilla, who was photographing Jackie Onassis. 
and stuff. You know, he made he made New York so glamorous. Well, Ron Galilla became our friend in the end, and his his wife uh, Betty cooked me Christmas dinner right after Robert's death because he died in the fall, and um, you know and. Uh, Ron got on the phone and he called the media and Robert was in 35 publications in one day because of just Ron. Ron was the first American paparazzi. Wow. And he has, you know, carte blanche with the media. You met all of these illustrious people. Through Robert. Through Robert. But you came in contact with them. What was one thing that they all shared in common, do you think? Uh, a desire about design you know, being around the best. I think that's what kind of is different about New York than any other place. You know, people here do care about design, but but they just don't really get it. They, they still got this thing about money, you know. Uh, How so? That it's expensive. Mm. That, um, what's a classy is their word? You know, it's classies, like a mental block. Classy is right. not a word in New York you would use with the decorative arts. It's like, you know, the subtle, you know, it's, it's just, it's something different. You know, it's it's something I pick up on my radar, but I don't really articulate it. Yeah. But it's different here. That's interesting. And New York is really sophisticated when it comes to... Uh, Do you visit often, New York? No, I haven't been back since forever. I don't want to go back. No, I just cut off from that. We never knew people very well. I mean, nobody ever was at our house. In in the book that was written, I read about the Warhol he sold, and you guys bought a trailer, which sounds absolutely romantic. Oh, my God. That's the self-portrait. That's a... All right, we... Warhol dies. Three weeks or maybe a month after he dies, there's a sale in White Plains, New York. And Ming Vaz is there. That's um, uh, Warhol's uh, personal and business uh, associate um, uh, assistant. And uh, uh, we walk in, and um, uh, Ming Vaz comes up to us, and he says, "Don't buy that uh, that uh, Warhol. That claims it's it's called a painting of a person. You know, they didn't even put Warhol because it's not signed. So, um, so." The sale comes, and we sit on this side, and Ming Vaz is on the other side of the audience, and Robert gets up just when the the painting comes up, and uh, Robert goes, I don't care if that painting's fake or real. What could be better than a fake of a fake? <laughs> He says, I got $60 on me, and I'm going... He's screaming this across the whole audience. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to buy that if it takes every penny. And he gets it. You know, I think he had $5 left. <laughs> so we have that, you know, the Red Warhol. We have it in the back of our pickup, which does not have a cap. And it's raining, and we're buying tons of furniture every day. It's just pile of the truck every day when we come in to sell. You know, we sell everything the day we find it. So, so I says, Robert, I says, you know, if uh, we have that painting much longer, it's going to be ruined. You know, because it's out in the rain, 
and it's being shoved around in the back all the time. And um, and I said, let's at least go see Fred. So we go up there to see Fred, and um, I have to stay outside because parking. I, I'd get a ticket. And so Robert goes in, and he goes by Bridget Polk. You know how she got her name Polk? She would poke people in the butt with uh, with a needle full of uh, speed <gasps> at parties. Her her father was a hearse. So here we got Bridget. She's richer than Warhol. And she can't stand us because she thinks we're ripping off Warhol. We're always there. It's not that she couldn't stand us. I mean, she always made a fuss about it. But she's watching as you come in. You know, some gorilla girl shot him once yeah, uh, a few right. times. So she's there with her little pug dogs. <laughs> anyway, so Robert goes by her and goes up and sees uh, Fred. And uh, they look through all the books and they can't find it. I think this was a gift to Robert, that red painting. Because first of all, Ming Bass Vaz told us it's a phony. Then we buy it, and we go see Fred, and Fred takes us serious. And he shows us all these books, and it's not there. And Robert gets ready to leave, and he says, well, here's one little book up here. And it's the World Fair, the 64 World Fair. And uh, Warhol did the 10 Most Wanted in the American Pavilion. And they made him take them down, so he put himself up there. Huh. And it's one of those paintings. And so... Um, uh, Fred Hughes said, um, I'll stamp it with Warhol's signature because Warhol wanted to be a robot, you know, so he had a signature you could stamp. So he stamped Andy Warhol, and Robert goes, You stamped it backwards. And he says, no one's going to believe it. The name's upside down. So he, he stamps it again. And Robert says, now no one's going to believe it because there's two signatures on it. <laughs> so Fred Hughes goes, I, Fred Hughes, verify that this is a real Andy Warhol. <laughs> so we put it in the auction right away. And uh, the crash happened the day before the auction. So we got 20,000, we bought a scampi, you're right. And we went to, we went up to uh, Fishkill, and lived up in Fishkill. Uh, Talk but to me about Robert's art. Robert's art, all right, Robert, he never painted on a canvas or anything. So we moved to Florida, a boring city. I mean, it was before Miami had anything going. There was gay bars but they were old-time gay bars, and uh, Robert could not handle it. So he started painting. And the pa first painting he did was on a sheet. And it was just kind of a constructivist. Then he would, he would go to the newsstands, and he would see, like, his friends are all getting into flash art, art in America, and stuff like that. And uh, Archie Conley, who's now in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, was a friend of Robert's. He lived in a geometric dome with this guy in Canyon, California. And uh, so Archie went to New York first and got really going great in the art world. And, uh, and Flash Art did his, while we were in Florida, and it was a table covered in fake pearls, and it was driftwood and a glass top and then pearl spider web. Oh, wow. 
Archie's thing was, I want my art to be so tasteful it makes you puke. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe that goddamn table. You know, and that's my friend. That's my friend. And so, and then uh, um, uh, Jed Garrett was another one. You'd see business people in business, uh, business Week, you know, and there'd be a Jed Garrett behind him. That's Robert's friend. You know, his whole family was Robert's friend. And uh, these people knew, and they're all wealthy kids. And they, uh, you know, they find uh, Flying A, and they realize this guy's just outrageous. You know, and he's welfare, but they don't care, you know. And so um, when we were in Florida, then he did that. And then, you know, he really started caring about art because all his friends were making it. So uh, he started, first he painted the, the Noguchi table. You see my coffee table? That's the first thing he ever painted. Wow. Then he started painting me. He had this Polaroid with uh, me holding a cigarette. When we were first opening the door for the Henry Hotel, when we first got in, we were living in a car until we got the front of the Henry Hotel and the police were making us move and shit. And I had license plates I had stolen from Seattle on there, but I had a Pan Am ID, so they let me go. <laughs> you know, so finally we move into the Pan Am parking lot where we're safe and it's gorgeous. You know, all, you know, just a beautiful parking lot. What, what did you think about his work? Did huh? you, what did you think about Robert's work? You were surrounded by it. So oh, much. yeah, yeah. Well, I've always, you know, I had a total respect for it. I mean, um, you know what? As I look back, um, I, I uh, wish that I had to put my concentration on his art instead of the decorative arts. But he loved it so much. And really, I had no power. All final decisions, Robert just, that's it. End of subject. You know, like when he was selling his art in the back, people were, he was getting really drunk. And the, people knew that if they got him screwed up, they could get shit. You know, and so they were getting, you know, his, the disease of alcoholism never stands still. It progresses. And he was getting so he couldn't even hold on to money. And they were giving him stronger stuff than just beer. Sure. And um, um, he, he would, you know, that's when I stopped just sitting in the truck reading. I started going back there because I didn't like that all these paintings were going out. He'd paint all week and they were just gone and there was no money. So I, I'd stand and Robert says, go back in the truck. And I say no, because it was at the final stage that he needed help. And uh, these people were vultures, you know, and not that they thought they were. Sure. He says, we got to get Robert fucked up so we can get what we want. That's what it was, you know. Um, but anyway, so, so um, you know, 26th Street was God to him because he was God there. And I stopped. I stopped going there. What is 26th Street? It's a flea market. It's the flea market. It's much smaller now than when it was in the 80s. It took up fields after fields wow. because there was a lot of emptiness in Midtown. It ain't empty anymore. And they just gobbled up every field that way with new high-rises. 
but it's still important because they, they come from Pennsylvania all over there. But anyway, so Robert uh, started painting from that Polaroid at first. Let me ask you, what do you think is Robert's legacy? His legacy is so there. I mean, I don't worry about his legacy. But what do you think it is? What, what, what do you think is at the, at the meat of his legacy? Uh, uh, his genius, you know, his design genius. His uh, Robert was the highest in the draft. So many people, Robert says, everybody thinks they can do a brute. I can't do a brute, he goes. And that's because, and they can't. I'm the authenticator, and it's been so easy, you know, it's been so easy, you know, and he did 5,000 paintings, but, you know, he had that template in his head, and, and it's exact every time, and everyone's different, and what Robert did for me in his art, for the authentication stuff, is he created a brand. In his last show in, uh, in, um, in uh, Phoenix, Art LTD did a critique on him, which was kind of tongue-in-cheek. But what they said was, everybody in the arts wants to do one thing. Everybody fails. Mr. Laughlin succeeded. He created a brand. By painting me 5,000 times, every time different, but you know it's the brute, he created a brand. I got trademarks on the image, and I got trademarks on his name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, in closing, I want to ask you... Closing? <laughs> it's not 9 o'clock, is it? No. <laughs> We're afraid of the dark. We're like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. 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 But let me ask you. I come from New York. Yeah. Lots of artists in New York. Right? Yeah. A lot of young artists. What, would, what advice, after meeting all of these brilliant people, after living with a brilliant artist mm -hmm. for such a long time, what advice would you give a young Robert now to have a successful career well you know we had an art gallery and and we've seen firsthand what artists go through i mean they to to think themselves an artist already you become what you do so you're not going to become an artist you are an artist and you got the worst thing to do what we noticed was an artist will go crazy during the show, before the show, or after the show. But they're going to go crazy because you're there naked, saying you're an artist. You just got to go through that. You know, it's just like I did theater. And um, you have to go to auditions, you know, and you got to accept the re rejection. It's nice to have somebody that believes in you, you know, because, you know, there's plenty of people that don't. No matter who you are, if you're Michelangelo, there's plenty of people that, you know, Michelangelo didn't, you know, everybody. So there is to be persistent. That's what I'd say, you know, have faith in yourself and, and just do it. Bo Jackson it, you know. Bo Jackson it, I love it. And one more question. Sure. 30-year relationship, a gay relationship for 30 years, correct? Yeah. What was... The secret to longevity in a relationship. It's respect. Respect is what, it's a super respect. It's not just respect, it's a super respect. And that's something you can't create. It's something that just faces you one day and it hits you. 
You know, like when Robert and I first met, I mean, you know, that first year that we went to Florida, I went to Florida to get away from him. I thought he was after my money. I had none. That's what happens in love. You know, you just can't believe it's true. So I was making overtime. I said, he's after my overtime. And, and of course, he was. I mean, because right away we shared our money. You know, we didn't have separate money. It was all one money. I, and I was making a lot of money over time, and I just handed it to Robert. And then I'm going like, am I fucked up? I'm, and so I put a transfer. So anyway, so I tell, you know, I didn't tell Robert I was moving until I sold the boat. So he knew then, and I says, well, I'm going to transfer to Florida. And uh, I didn't bring up anything else. And that morning that I was going, you know, everything was packed. I had bought a station wagon, a Plymouth station wagon, a used car, and I was ready to take off. I went to bed, and I, that morning I woke up that I was leaving, and I, I'm physically sick. I can't leave, you know, and, and but I would had to. And I turned around, and he was in bed with me. He had unlocked, you know, I was in the basement, he had unlocked one of the windows and crawled in during the night. So we take off. And on that first trip, John Lennon's song came out, Starting Over. And uh, I remember the first night we stayed in a motel, and it was cold in New York, it was fall, and the southern heat was starting to come. You know, we woke up to this bright light and warmth. We drove a long night, you know, and it was different. And, you know, um, uh, Robert turns to me and he goes, it's so healthy where we're going. You know, it just seemed healthy after New York. New York was filthy in the 80s. And, uh, oh, Houston was a, like a, you know, a scary place. Look at it now. You know, and so uh, Robert started calling me Poopy. We started calling each other Poopy on that trip. And to the end, to the end, he always said Poopy, you know. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that that wasn't thought out. It just came out, you know. But, yeah, it's... Uh, Thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. That's beautiful. Want to share your thoughts on the conversation? Reach out on Instagram at StuConPodcast or visit the website StudioConfessions.com. Follow me and check out my work at Art Engineer. Please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on. It goes a long way. Thanks for listening. If you heard anything that moved you, please share it. You are the spark that can ignite a thousand flames. I am Luis Martin, the Art Engineer, sharing with you what moves me.